Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Eruk the end of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfin. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nachvetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestin Echo. Vientolum again omgrev or corn rachtum. Yatakshatorin Graven or Corson, Elistuhalagus Gimina Fracht, Gorokligs or Dukashin Echor. Only Venown, Thordorakshin. Shachten. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Hello and welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the technology editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. And today we've got a really interesting show because I'm delighted to say we have Helen Dixon, who is the Data Protection Commissioner uh, here in Dublin, uh, and arguably maybe one of the most, if not the most important, data protection commissioners in Europe um, because of all the big tech companies that are located here. And we're going to talk about all sorts of uh, sorts of stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about GDPR, not just GDPR. We're going to talk about big tech companies, uh, data privacy, uh, stuff coming down the line. And Helen, the big thing that everybody is talking about at the moment is this EU-wide privacy law, the uh, the GDPR, which for a lot of people means two things. One, a tightening up uh, on how companies and organizations can use their data, but also um, big fines and enforcement for companies that are found to be in breach of that. And I've asked you before whether you would be willing when this uh, when this when the enforcement period comes in on the 25th of May, whether you would be willing to come down with the full 20 million euro or 4% of annual turnover um, enforcement. And, and you said you, you will do that. So you're right. Uh, lots of talk, uh, very encouragingly from our point of view at the moment, about this new general data protection regulation, which, as you said, applies to all companies processing data from the 25th of May 2018. Uh, And you said it means two big things to organisations. First of all, it means that they have to pay more attention in terms of how they collect and process personal data from uh, customers, service users, citizens, members of the public. Uh, And then they also have to be concerned, as you said, in terms of avoiding enforcement action, either from data protection authorities or private enforcement action uh, from individuals. But actually, we prefer to start the conversation with companies and public sector bodies from the perspective of the accountability that the General Data Protection Regulation demands of them, rather than diving in and talking about enforcement and big fines. Because really what this new law is doing is very sensibly putting uh, back on the shoulders of organisations basic accountability for how they handle and process personal data. So it it starts off with all of those principles we're already familiar with under data protection law, the requirement uh, to collect data in a way that's lawful and fair, to be transparent with users, keep it only as long as is necessary, secure the data, 
provide access to a copy of the personal data, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to individuals. It layers on then two new principles, the requirement to keep uh, data confidential and to maintain the integrity of data. Uh, and then it layers on this overriding requirement for organizations to be accountable. And by being accountable, it means they have to demonstrate uh, on demand to individuals that they have uh, handled their data responsibly, mm. responsibly rather, uh, and have to demonstrate that to data protection authorities as well. I mean, there, there are lots of things that come to mind when, uh, when, when you mention that. Uh, there are a lot of big companies, for example, I'm thinking of Yahoo, I'm thinking of a lot of other uh, uh, multinational tech firms who have had really serious data breaches in the last couple of years. Yahoo, for example, as you, as you well know, mm -hmm. um, I think three billion was, was the final figure, three billion email accounts that they lost or that they admitted uh, were, were compromised. And I'll come back to that in, in one second, but you mentioned private enforcement, which is not something that is referred to that much in talking about GDPR. And do you mean t private citizens taking action themselves um, under, under the law for breaches uh, that, uh, that, that they know that have happened? And, and if so, how, how would that come about? That's exactly what I mean. Uh, and you're right that there isn't too much talk about it, but we often say to organisations, you may have more to fear, particularly in a case where there is a breach and a large scale breach with serious consequences from private enforcement than you do from the actions of the Data Protection Authority, because the GDPR now gives the right to each individual to go to court and to seek compensation where they've suffered either material or non-material damage as a result of an infringement of mm -hmm. the general data protection regulation. And just for people who wouldn't be au fait with uh, the regulation itself, materially, what is the difference in a private citizen doing that post-GDPR and now pre-enforcement GDPR? Like, What sort of a situation or an everyday scenario might somebody um, uh, go to court over or feel, or, or feel empowered to go to court over after May the 25th, wh where they cannot do so now? So there's a couple of things that uh, create a difference between uh, the current regime and post uh, May 25th. So under the Irish Data Protection Act currently in Section 7, individuals can go to court uh, to seek compensation where they've suffered damage uh, under under uh, the existing acts. But the courts in a case called FBD versus Collins have interpreted that as meaning that an individual has to show they've suffered actual or financial loss as a result uh, of an infringement. And under the GDPR, it's recognised that it doesn't have to be material damage, it can be non-material damage. So humiliation arising out of a breach where photographs, for example, uh, are I leaked mean, or disclosed to yeah, third parties. So it's, it's broadening the base considerably in terms of the right of action and it's clarifying the law mm -hmm. uh, uh, and contrary to the case law in Ireland in FBD versus Collins. But also what's going to be significant in terms of a change under GDPR and which I believe is going to drive more of this private enforcement action is that uh, companies and public sector organisations will have an obligation under the GDPR to report breaches to the Data Protection Authority uh, and where that breach poses high risks to individuals, they will have an obligation to disclose the breach to the affected individuals as well. So we're going to see much more notification to all of us as service users in the future of breaches that 
uh, heretofore we might have been unaware of. Mm. I mean, I mentioned Yahoo earlier on. That would strike me as being one of the types of cases that might arise under a private individual's uh, initiative to, to take legal action. In fact, in the US, I believe, a couple of days ago, a court in California has just given the go-ahead for um, Yahoo, affected Yahoo users to, to sue Yahoo in the States, probably in California, um, over, uh, over losses or over uh, th that data breach. Um, is that the kind of thing that a post-GDPR environment might bring here? Might people who, if another Yahoo were to happen, or indeed if, if people are only discovering now about their Yahoo accounts being hacked, could that, um, you know, could we see individual citizens taking action, legal action on that basis here? I think we certainly could see individuals taking legal action on that basis. Uh, it would, of course, be a matter entirely for the courts in Ireland then to assess, well, what quantum would we, we put on compensation? Has the breach been merely technical? Uh, there was a threat of access to the accounts, but the loss was mitigated substantially by the company uh, once the uh, breach was discovered. Or has there been actual loss? Has there been data leaked? Have there been consequences suffered by the individual? So that will be for the courts to assess mm -hmm. uh, the nature and uh, the gravity uh, of the loss for individuals and then to put a quantum in terms of compensation, if any, they would And also, award. I think in Ireland, we don't really, as far as I'm aware, any legal listeners will correct me here, but I don't think we have uh, a history of class action suits in No, in and there won't be class actions no. uh, in Ireland under the GDPR mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. um, just while, uh, before we leave the topic of Yahoo, I think uh, about a year ago, no, wasn't it, was it a year ago? Maybe six months ago, when all this Yahoo stuff was... Um, in the news, there was a suggestion that you as the Data Protection Commissioner here in Ireland, where Yahoo have, in Dublin, where Yahoo have their offices, might need to look into this or take action. Did anything kind of happen arising so, out of that? So, yes, we did uh, conduct an investigation in relation to that uh, very large-scale Yahoo breach, or two breaches, in fact. Uh, and we conducted the investigation because the controller, which is a technical term under data protection law, the controller for European users was located in Ireland, Yahoo EMEA Limited, here in Ireland. And under the Irish Data Protection Acts, the obligations on that controller based in Ireland, where it was transferring the data back to Yahoo Inc. in the US, was to ensure that the processor being Yahoo Inc. in the US had appropriate safeguards in place to safeguard and secure the data. Because as you know, the breaches in this case uh, occurred from Yahoo Inc. in the US mm -hmm. rather, from the, rather than from the Dublin-based controller. And so we've conducted a lengthy investigation over the last year in relation to uh, the measures that were in place, the act of oversight that was taken by the controller in Ireland over uh, what safeguards were in place, put in place by the processor. And we're just at the concluding stages of the report okay. and the findings and serving that on Yahoo EMEA Limited uh, in Ireland. OK, so that's imminent, is it? That's imminent. All right. OK. Um, just uh, moving on to uh, in, under GDPR, we see an awful lot uh, of uh, big companies who, which suffer uh, data breaches. We've just spoken a little bit uh, about Yahoo. Sometimes a big company will try to uh, plead nation state action, a rogue nation state. And that up to now, 
more often than not has kind of been a get out of jail card for a company or an organization because the theory has always been that um, if um, uh, a state, Russia, North Korea, who, whoever it is, decides to go at an organization um, or indeed another country's uh, IT setup, that their expertise and their ability will often exceed any ability of you know, uh, uh, an individual company, wherever it's located, to actually defend against that, that attack. Do you think, will GDPR change that assumption, do you think, if there is another big data breach and uh, the company says, well, we're not sure, but the initial, um, uh, the initial signs looked like it was a nation state attack. Does, is that going to continue to be a get out of jail card? You're right. We hear a lot about these state sponsored actors uh, that are alleged to be behind some of these larger scale breaches, particularly uh, as concerns Internet and infrastructure companies. Um, it won't per se be a get out of uh, jail card. Uh, so where a breach has occurred and, and it's not contested uh, that it has occurred, uh, there likely be a presumption of an infringement uh, of the general data protection regulation in those circumstances. But when we come to look under Article 83 of the GDPR uh, at what sanction we would apply, it sets out uh, a number of mitigation criteria which would be, we would be obliged to take into account. Some of the mitigation criteria are very straightforward, whether uh, in the course of the investigation we're conducting, the controller cooperates with us, whether having become aware of the breach, they sought to mitigate the losses of affected individuals as quickly as possible. Uh, but one of the other things that we would have to take into account is uh, whether the controller had applied uh, every last safeguard, state-of-the-art security measures and taken every conceivable action uh, possible. We, we haven't, I suppose, come across a company to date in the course of our investigations that you could say, well, they've had state-of-the-art uh, processes and systems and taken every last action that was possible. But the theoretical possibility is there. Uh, Even with all those huge, big, billion-dollar multinational companies and all the resources they have? Uh, as I said, it's a theoretical uh, possibility that mm. if they have applied state-of-the-art, uh, objectively demonstrable state-of-the-art security, uh, and there really appears to have been nothing further they could have done, mm. uh, then in theory that would certainly be a mitigation uh, criteria. But as I say, we, we, we haven't come across in any specific circumstances that we've investigated a company where there's an absolutely clean slate when we go to look at mm -hmm. uh, precisely what was done, precisely what active supervision there was of processors, uh, what types of audit took place. Uh, you know, you, you'll have seen in the annual report that we published recently for 2017, the annual report of the DPC, uh, that particularly in relation to medium-sized organisations, we're still seeing uh, basic cybersecurity hygiene, as we call it, that's very poor in a lot of cases. Uh, failure to keep systems and patches updated, uh, poor password setting, failure to use uh, all of the layered authentication options that are available, leaving systems set at their default settings and not configuring them. Uh, I mean, for, for a small business, while you, you wouldn't condone it, you can kind of understand it because it's it kind of a mixture of 
maybe lack of knowledge, maybe someone sets up a, a, you know, a new company, a bakery or a pub or something, maybe they grow, they've two, two other locations and they have an IT system, but they don't really know how to, to use it. They can't really afford to bring on an IT, you know, to, 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 to employ an IT specialist full time. And, and then, the, but the other side to that is as well, is like, what is the downside? What's the worst that can happen to a small business if they're hacked? And in the last couple of years, we would arguably have seen maybe ransomware is a very real uh, threat. But other than that, I mean, if they suffer well, if a data breach, card, for example. If my credit card details are exfiltrated and my credit mm -hmm. card is then used fraudulently as, as an affected individual, I'm not going to be happy. And it won't really matter to me that it was my local bakery uh, that, no, that, that caused me to suffer the loss. Yeah. So, yeah. No, um, no, absolutely. But it, just in terms, I mean, having written, a, covered this for, for a, a, a few years, it's not always apparent that companies that, for example, suffer data breaches um, suffer demonstrably awful um, uh, results uh, from that. I mean, I think in your own report, uh, the 2017 data protection uh, report, I think there were there six prosecutions last year, I think. Um, for uh, maybe that was for marketing related there, there were marketing related Sorry, offenses yeah. and there was one big prosecution then of a private yeah. investigator yeah uh, company. Um, but in general your chances of getting into significant trouble for example other than maybe reputational damage which you might take a risk on which you take a risk on in all sorts of uh, uh, incidents every day um, they're not huge or, or they haven't been up to now yeah, I, I suppose just to go back to the smaller firms and, and the examples you gave, the, the bakers, the, the, the local pharmacy and so on, um, you're right that often they rely on intermediary service providers in order to set up their IT systems, their online payment systems, their, their website. Uh, and, and those intermediary service providers often then in turn uh, engage processors, even in the form of cloud providers. But I suppose a message we would have even for those smaller businesses is that uh, they really need to do due diligence when they're hiring those intermediary service providers and ensure that they're appropriately qualified, get testimonials from other companies, because the consequences, as I said, can be very significant. We investigated uh, one incident involving a pharmacy where uh, credit card fraud was committed with the customer's credit card and it was because the details had been uh, exfiltrated as a result of a security issue uh, between the intermediary service provider and the cloud processor. Can, so, can I ask you, in that, in, in that incident then, what would the consequences or what, what happened to the pharmacy in, in that case? So, as, as you know, at the moment, we don't have a fining capability. So we would have uh, found that uh, they had uh, failed to comply with Section 2 of the Acts and we would have compelled them to take uh, remedial action in order to correct it uh, straight away. Uh, under GDPR, we would be obliged, in addition to those corrective actions of obliging them to remediate the situation, we'd be obliged to consider whether additionally to fine, and we'd have to then an look at the fine. an administrative Without fine. Without having to go to court. Uh, in the case of uh, the Irish regulator imposing administrative fines, we will have to have the court confirm every fine uh, right. that we seek to administer. Mm -hmm.
Okay. So, but, so we will have to go to court yeah. as the data protection authority in each case. So for that pharmacy, the the, the penalty, as it were, were was um, uh, notice and, and enforcement of sorts by the data protection uh, authority here and also perhaps uh, bad customer relations with... Sure, and, and yeah. uh, that individual may have posted uh, a review online and and mm -hmm. generally given some publicity uh, to the issue. Yeah, okay. Um, a couple of other uh, issues that I think you're looking at at the moment. There's one, and we've talked about this a bit on this podcast before, um, the public services card, which is a little bit controversial at the moment for people who haven't been following this. This is the... Um, the card that the, I think th there are three million that have been issued now in Ireland. So actually, anyone listening probably will know what it is. Um, and it has a lot of your personal information on it. And I believe it's now required to uh, to get a passport if you're a first time passport applicant. And the, the debate here is whether this is a practical, efficient way of cutting out uh, fraud and administrative lapses and making everything move smoother or whether it's a kind of a national identity card by stealth and <clears throat> the government is kind of shoehorning in a system that it, that it wants to rely on and, and, and us all to, to depend on it. But I think you have you've an audit underway on that, do you? We have an investigation uh, okay. underway in relation to the public services card, which uh, we uh, launched in, in Q4 of last year. And what triggered us to launch the investigation was, as you said, uh, it suddenly became prevalent that it was mandatory to produce the public services card to the exclusion of any other form of identity for a whole range of, of government services, including uh, the driver theory test, now incoming the driver's license, the passport and so on. Uh, and so we uh, sought to open an investigation to uh, look at what the legal basis for the public services card is, to look at the legal basis for compelling it to the exclusion of any other form of identity uh, in relation to the procuring of services from the state, uh, to look at what the transparency to the public uh, was in relation to what's being collected, uh, what type of data is on the card, what precisely it's been used for, uh, with what type of uh, government agencies it's been shared and to look at what this safe to registration system that underpins the public services card is again, mm -hmm. what the legal basis is, whether the data is collected fairly in terms of uh, transparency to the public uh, around the card. And it seemed to us uh, from uh, queries that we were receiving to our office uh, that that there was a case that there wasn't uh, sufficient transparency. And so we opened an investigation to look at the range of these issues. As I said to you earlier, the first principles of data protection law are lawful and fair uh, processing. And we're really going back to first principles uh, mm. with this investigation. I mean, I, I don't have one. I must, I'm must. i one of the remaining 1.8 million who, who, who doesn't have one. But I do have a passport. I do have a driver's license. So I'm assuming I won't need one for that, pur for that purpose. But... Um, is it just is the investigation primarily looking at the legal basis on which the public services card can be required to be produced? Because after all, different departments and different organizations are probably entitled to say, well, for proof of identity, um, we accept this 
uh, this uh, type of ID, that type of ID or some other type of ID. So, as I said, we're looking at, at the legal basis for the card. Uh, there isn't any one piece of legislation called the Public Services uh, Card Act or called the Safe to Registration Act mm. uh, that sets out uh, in uh, an automatically uh, and immediately apparent way what the legal basis for the card is. So we saw, for example, when Irish Water was established, there were a number of Irish Water Services Acts and it was immediately obvious if you read those acts uh, how the database for Irish Water was being formed uh, by collecting data from a number of different government databases. But with this particular uh, implementation and rollout by government, it's it's not immediately apparent for a member of the public where you go to look uh, if you were curious and wanted to understand the law underpinning. Uh, because in fact the law is spread over a number of pieces of primary legislation, social welfare legislation and a number of pieces of secondary legislation in some cases. So we are looking at the legal basis because processing has to be lawful. But as I said, connected with that, we're looking at the transparency. It's, it's not enough to have a legal basis. You have to be very transparent uh, and clear with the public. Uh, why the data is being collected. And it would also be necessary uh, to justify why certain uh, a, a certain form of identity to the exclusion of any other form of identity uh, is necessary in the circumstances. Of course, we are, talking, we are talking about the public sector and government services. If Ryanair or Aer Lingus, Aer Lingus certainly up until recently uh, accepted a driver's license when you were going between Ireland and the UK if you didn't have your passport with you. But if some of these big private organisations start accepting it as uh, a means of identification um, or pubs or nightclubs start accepting it um, for people to show that they're... Well, the government has passed legislation to allow uh, holders of the card uh, to voluntarily produce it to private mm. sector bodies. So, so, so but if, if lots of those private sector bodies do start accepting it, it kind of becomes a runaway thing on its own, doesn't it? And whether or not it's required for public sector um, use, if every single big organisation accepts it as an alternative to a driver's licence or a passport or, or something uh, like that, eventually the public sector will probably, will probably <laughs> accept it as well. Yeah, they? I suppose you're getting into speculation that's certainly beyond the scope of the investigation mm -hmm. we're conducting. But what I would say is in, in your last question there, you talked about alternatives to and I suppose one of the points we're looking at is the fact that alternatives are not being recognized yeah. uh, it's it's mandatory to the exclusion of, so of any yeah. uh, currently known so you alternatives. you could use a driver's license or a passport uh, so, instead. So that yeah. becomes the point yeah. uh, that, that And then there's I mean there's also um, there's also the whole it comes down to a basic philosophy though doesn't it as well because underpinning a lot of this when you talk to people who are against it anyway is they don't like the idea of a national identity card and there are two very different sensibilities it seems to me here in the continent and continental countries they don't really have a problem with it and they a lot of European countries do have national ID cards and they just regard it as a fact of life and it's uh, it's an efficient way of doing things now maybe they have a high level of trust in in their public sector bodies um, as well um, in this part of the world we've have, haven't we always derived more of a common law sensibility around it that you don't have to have 
mandatorily papers on you so that if you're stopped in the street by a Garda, for example, that they can say, I want to see all of your papers. And um, except unless you're a driver, and I think they are entitled to, to ask you for your driver's license. Um, but th there is that clash of sensibilities there. Um, and to what extent, it's not really your, this, this has nothing to do with your technical investigation, but you know, is there something underpinning that there that, that we just we just don't like the idea of a national ID card? Of course, you're absolutely right. There are national identity cards in the vast majority of EU member states. And in many cases, they have that characteristic that they have to be carried at all times. In some of the member states, they don't. Uh, and so in common law countries like New Zealand, the UK and Ireland, there has, as you said, always been uh, a view that's opposed to national identity cards. And you're right, th that's not the aim of our investigation. It's it's not the role of the Data Protection Authority to dictate what mm. government policy should or shouldn't be. But to the extent that a card of this nature and the safe to registration system itself involves the collection and processing and sharing of uh, significant amounts of personal data, it must be lawfully collected, as mm -hmm. I said, and there must be transparency about it. Um, I, I think and a good test is when you go into some coffee shops like Starbucks, when you, uh, when you ask for a coffee, they ask you for your name. And what they, it's just for an efficiency thing. So they write your name on the side <laughs> of the cup, okay? And then so they can, if you're, if, you're, if you're already seated, they can say, you know, Adrian or Helen or whatever it is. And every single time I say my name is Joe, it's just an instinctive reaction. I won't tell them my name. Now, that might be uh, some sort of psychosis going on in my own head, <laughs> but that, that does indicate to me that some, at some level, I'm slightly uncomfortable with kind of people... Um, you know, uh, strangers knowing who I am and what my name is and, and uh, you know, uh, even writing it on the side of a, a cup. <laughs> it's so funny that you perceive that as, as an efficiency mechanism. I, I think it's an engagement mechanism. OK. There's, there's nothing efficient, I find, about asking people to repeat their name about four times. Well, especially if it's uh, an Until Irish they name. get it right yeah. uh, for the cup. And invariably, I think they record a, a name that only loosely resembles that yeah. which you tell them. And by the way, I'm fully cognizant of the irony and the double standard in going on Twitter and Facebook and putting up photos and, and, and all sorts of stuff and st I still am uncomfortable telling the person behind the Starbucks counter what my name is you know <laughs> there, there, is, there is a there is definitely but but I can't be the only person you know I, I've, I've seen a lot of listened to a lot of people who really really don't like the idea of a national ID card, whether or not the PSC card turns out to be that. Uh, uh, they don't like the idea of, you know, having to have a card on them, which authorities can then, um, you know, call on them to produce more and more ubiquitously. And, and, and they've no choice. And, they, and as you say, they're not entirely sure about the transparency of the data behind it. And sure, and that would be a matter to lobby politicians on as to whether uh, you're you're opposed to or in favour of. But equally, it would be a matter for, for government to transparently um, cite that it intended to pursue such a policy. And as we know, in relation to the public services card, it's been said many times, it doesn't purport to be a national identity card. Um, and as you also said, this isn't the scope of what we're investigating. Our scope is lawfulness under the Data Protection Act specifically. Mm -hmm. There's one, I think there's another... 
um, issue that you're involved with. There was this, there was a, I think there was a stand-up with the Central Statistics Office over mobile roaming data. Am, am I right there? This was an issue where I think the CSO wanted to um, access uh, roaming data from telecoms operators to better, to give a fuller, uh, a more complete view, perhaps for tourism purpose purposes, um, of... Uh, the number of people coming in or into Ireland or, or leaving uh, Ireland. And I think, did your office do you, do you take exception to that? Yes, uh, the Central Statistics Office did consult with our office and we have a huge amount of respect for the work that the Central Statistics uh, Office does and, and appreciated the fact that they did consult with us. But they consulted with us over a period of time mm. in relation to accessing uh, essentially retained data under the 2011 Data Retention Act from the telcos. Um, and uh, we examined uh, whether there would be a legal basis uh, for uh, the statistics office accessing it. And ultimately, we concluded that uh, there wouldn't be. Uh, and despite the safeguards proposed by the Central Statistics Office, uh, we couldn't see any way in which the access would be lawful. Mm -hmm. um, the CSO and other bodies, and this would go back to the PSC card as well, might say, look, for God's sake, this is just about trying to, um, you know, we're not trying to invade anybody's privacy here. privacy here. We already have an awful lot of personal data on people because when we send out those census forms, they have to put all sorts of information um, on there. Now, there's a legal basis be behind that. But the principle of the thing, they might say, well, you know, um, what's what's the worst that can happen here? You know, so it's important to remember that data protection legislation isn't just about privacy. And sometimes I think people are confused, particularly in a debate around the public services card. They're saying, well, what's the issue anyway with any data sharing? Because it's just my name, address, my mother's maiden name. It's it's data state bodies are collecting on me anyway. Data protection is broader than than uh, informational privacy because it's a right to control uh, the use of your personal data. So very much an orientation of the GDPR in terms of the data subject rights that organisations have to deliver against is about that ability uh, of users to control their own destiny in terms of uses of their personal data. So so the issue is one of control. Um, if the original purpose for which telcos are collecting metadata in relation to my phone usage uh, is to manage the delivery of that service uh, to me, uh, then uh, it's being used for an entirely new purpose for which there's potentially no legal underpinning. Uh, if if another body can pop up and say, well, I have a good idea how I could exploit that data. So, um it's more than just a matter of standing on principle. It is about our ability to control and know what the limits mm. on uses of our data that we hand over based on a given understanding of the purpose for which it's going to be used. So it's it's a matter of significant importance. Uh, isn't what you've just described essentially the basis of most big new tech data companies and what they're doing in the services that they're offering. Like we, we just got an Amazon Echo in the house. You'd be familiar with that, the <laughs> yes. voice activated speaker. And other people will have a Google Home in, in America. 
um, you can get the, uh, the Alexa. The, uh, no, the, the Apple HomePod. You're not allowed to say Alexa, by the way. Sorry, oh. I just said it. Because if you say that, the A word, let's call it the A word, it triggers off <laughs> devices all over the place. It's like saying... I said it quietly. It's like saying, okay, gee. But, but we just got one of those devices. We now, we're now using it more and more. Amazon is... Actually, they're not very clear on how they collect uh, the the data with regard to the Amazon Echo. Do, actually, do you know do you know <laughs> what they do with the data um, from my morning weather queries? So I, I, I'm happy to say that Amazon is actually uh, controlled out of Luxembourg oh, and supervised relief. by my okay. Luxembourg peer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not uh, I'm not directly familiar with the Amazon yeah. Echo. Yeah, but uh, you know Facebook. Um, Amazon itself. I mean, why is why has Amazon created an Echo, essentially, to learn more about our shopping habits, to get us to shop through it? Um, you know, why why is Google developing uh, uh, all of these services, including artificial intelligence services, so they can learn more about us? And do you get a sense that? Maybe in the EU, we're at least trying to keep up with the technology. The GDPR is being given a lot of credit by a lot of other countries for at least trying to do something to retain some measure of control over personal uh, data. Whereas in other blocks, I'll talk about China in a second and what's happening over there, but it's truly incredible stuff happening with privacy over there. But even in the States, they kind of regard control of data and what uh, you know, and this trade-off between convenience and services and, and privacy as something kind of theoretical and not they don't they're not as bothered about it as 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 we are do, do you get the sense that the law can keep up with the technology and the services that these companies are bringing us i think the gdpr is going to go a long way in that direction i mean essentially you're describing the challenges that arise out of interfacing with those types of companies that monetize personal data and the challenges then are significant because for all of the free services and conveniences that are offered, we know that as our data is being collected, as we we click through and like things and uh, look at things, that that's been used to build a profile that's valuable then mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, serving ads, uh, interest-based ads on each individual. So key for us in terms of these companies that monetize personal data is the issue of transparency. And we've announced that this is going to be a key regulatory priority for our office because there has always been uh, the complaint that users aren't entirely clear that that is the deal. I, I think there's more and more awareness of it now. And, and uh, a lot of efforts have been made by the big internet companies, driven really by existing European data protection law in terms of allowing uh, users control their ad preferences to see why they're being served with a certain type of ad and cluing them in that I'm getting that ad because I visited those uh, existing websites or I ticked boxes saying mm -hmm. I had an interest in that area and so on. Um, and so we expect to see a, a marked change in how transparency is done by these internet companies under GDPR. We're waiting for the big reveal uh, from a lot of them. Mm -hmm. We're talking to them about layered privacy notices, uh, better visualization capability for users in mm -hmm. terms of data that's being collected uh, and how it's going to be used. But there's still a huge challenge in this area that's going to go on post 
25th of May 2018 that we intend to dig into. And it is that huge challenge of the long tail of the ad tech industry. Because as you know, in, in that ad tech industry and the online ad serving, there are a huge amount of players. Um, you know, before the publisher publishes to the user, there are exchanges, there are brokers, there are aggregators, there are all sorts of players involved. Uh, and, and we know if any of us use a, a, a cookie tracker, if we visit one website, mm. we may discover we've been connected with 24 other websites based on cookies that are dropped. So there's a whole issue, I think, that we need to look into about how the transparency can work better mm -hmm. in circumstances where there are so many and multiple actors involved in that complex world mm -hmm. uh, of data exchanges uh, and, and ad tech. And, and by the 25th of May, we're not going to have cracked it because the industry is not going to have come together to crack it. But we do intend to uh, engage with the uh, well, internet the, advertising yeah. bodies and start working out how this this really can be delivered. Yeah, I mean, and the big players will really set the tone, won't they? I mean, I think Facebook have a briefing here in Dublin actually next week um, on this and what they're, what they're going to be doing post GDPR. All eyes will be on Facebook, Google, you know, maybe maybe a handful of others. And yeah, and the most tracking the on the top. Internet is done by Facebook and Google. But whatever criticisms there are in relation to their transparency, there is at least a lot of information out there in terms of the cookies and the main cookies, the top 10 cookies dropped uh, between the two of them across the Internet. Mm -hmm. And there are descriptions and there are, there are blogs written by their engineers describing there are other players in ad tech where we just don't have that visibility and more nefarious operators uh, that individuals aren't aware of. So there's, there's a whole issue around uh, surfacing up what is going on in that space mm -hmm. uh, and trying to uh, rationalize it in some way so that mm -hmm. ultimately the individual service user has some transparency and control uh, as I said, which undoubtedly they don't at the moment. Mm. Just in terms of framing and, and shaping those that transparency, a question I've asked you before, and I, I remember asking your predecessor, Billy Hawks, as well. Um, the Irish Data Protection Office has both been praised and criticised uh, uh, um, from the US right across Europe um, because it appears to have uh, to allow a more consultative role with some of the biggest tech companies most particularly uh, Facebook, maybe Google, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, in terms of um, almost giving, guiding whether or not certain services or processes may be uh, okay or not okay. It's not necessarily at the type of system that other data protection authorities would use. They might have a, a, a a kind of a, a more sheer kind of kind of clear cut, maybe even adversarial process in Ireland. Both you have often spoken about the fact that there's nothing wrong with the consultative uh, process. Um, how engaged are you with, or is your team with those big companies? Like, how often would they approach you to ask to say something like, "We're thinking of a new addition to our service in this area." Um, we're not ready to go public with it yet. May we ask you whether or not it would pass muster? I mean, I'd go further than saying that I don't think there's anything wrong with the consultative approach. Um, I would go so far as to say it's absolutely necessary. And this is well documented in terms of 
theory of regulation and particularly in relation to regulation that's based on principles and, and a principles-based framework law. So I often quote the academic Julia Black from the London School of Economics, who's particularly strong in this space. She talks about something called regulatory com conversations. And regulatory conversations are absolutely essential in terms of allowing organisations uh, set out their understanding of the principles define the very specific circumstances in which they need to apply those principles of data protection law and seek guidance uh, from the regulator uh, in, in, in relation to uh, how they're applying the principles. So even Article 29, uh, which is the grouping of European data protection authorities, has moved now in this direction of consultation. In fact, the uh, general Data Protection Regulation obliges the successor to Article 29, the EU European Data Protection Board, to consult. So in developing guidance for all sorts of organisations on key concepts under GDPR, like the transparency requirements, like what consent means, uh, like the breach notification obligations under the GDPR, in providing that guidance, we've run national level consultations here in Ireland as a data protection authority, but also Article 29 has run consultations. And we've got the most fantastically useful inputs from all sorts of industry representative bodies, uh, representative bodies for charities and voluntary sector organisations and hugely useful also responses from consumer bodies in terms of the interests of citizens as we interpret these key concepts. So consultation is absolutely necessary because otherwise you've just got very uh, generic and laudable principles but mm -hmm. you've no means of applying them to the real world. So well, what about specific services or specific new features that a company like Facebook will want to introduce, but wants to essentially uh, data check it, data protection check it uh, against the, the, you know, the lead regulator's um, opinion uh, in the European Union. I mean, does that happen and how often does that happen? It, it does happen and it happens very regularly with the big companies that we supervise. As I said to you before, they're going through so many mergers and acquisitions, they're adding new big and significant products. Uh, at the rate of, of knots in some cases. So we have very frequent contacts with these companies over the last year in the roll-up to GDPR. Mm -hmm. uh, companies are seeking consultations with us uh, at a far greater example, rate. You gave an example uh, about a year ago. It may have been to do with cookies or cookie notifications, but the, the, your office, um, I think it was in one of the annual reports, actually uh, illustrated an example where Facebook... Um, added something or subtracted something after discussions with the with the office. Can you think of anything, any other examples? For this I, I mean, there are all sorts of examples. So they may consult us uh, and are consulting us currently in relation to their new transparency notices, their privacy notices, how they're going to display them on different devices. And they will take all sorts of guidance and feedback from us in relation to whether we think it hits the mark that the GDPR intended. Uh, whether uh, the notice is too inaccessible at any point as an individual navigates the service, whether there's insufficient information provided up front and too much being left for, for in-context notices to the user. So we're providing that sort of feedback uh, on, on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. um, 
One question you're always asked is about resources and whether you have enough uh, in your office to tackle all of this work, uh, particularly with the GDPR coming in. One imagines, you might correct me, but one imagines that there's going to be more of that. There are, is a constant stream of uh, IDA-backed tech companies, many of them uh, with data services that come into Ireland every single month. Um, the size of the cake must be three to four times bigger now than it was you know, five years ago, for example. Now, I know your office is, I think, it has, it's effectively doubling in size over a two to three year period. I think to 130 people, is that right? Something around yeah, that? Yeah, we should have about 140 people by the end of this year. We've okay. over 100 now. Our budget has more than quadrupled up to 11.7 million mm -hmm. this year. So we've been building and building and building, not just in terms of numbers of staff. As you know, we've done some specialist recruitment and recruited in very key uh, new members to our legal team, to our technology team and, and, and skills that we didn't have, business analytics skills and so on. Mm -hmm. So and you ask somebody, do they have enough resources? And the standard answer is, well, yes and no. Is, is, do you have enough resources in your office? So we are recruiting uh, at uh, the fastest pace that we can and we're absorbing the, the staff at, at the absorptive capacity that we have. So we're flat out in, in, in terms of the recruitment that we're conducting. The question of whether we have enough resources, um, I, I suppose, first of all, it's important to point out that we're now amongst the top tier of highly resourced data protection authorities uh, in the EU. Uh, do you mean per capita or do you mean over in terms of resourcing uh, the budget, the annual budget that we right. have to deploy and in terms of the number of staff that we have? So uh, we're we're behind the UK, France and Germany in terms mm. of numbers, but we're up there just in, in the tier right below them. That's the way uh, it should be, sure. Uh, I mean. And that is the way that it should be. But I suppose the point I was going to make is that. Um, other than the UK Data Protection Authority, which it's my understanding that it's the biggest data protection authority in the, the world at 400 about people 400, at, at 400 people. Um, data protection authorities uh, in Europe, uh, the last uh, survey that I saw, averaged about 68 staff. So they're not huge. And, and the mm. question of whether they're resourced adequately is a question really for the member states in Europe. Is this the importance you attach uh, to the regulatory and supervision role under the GDPR? Mm -hmm. So um, are we uh, adequately resourced? I would say no. And I would say no data protection authority has enough resources in terms of the importance we would attach to the issues uh, that fall out of, of mm -hmm. personal data processing and the types of risks and harms that can occur for individuals in terms of discrimination, identity theft, loss of reputation, uh, unfair decision making. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we will be making the case uh, to add further resources and particularly in the circumstances, as you say, that in Ireland we're supervising the biggest Internet companies in the world. Uh, and equally, I would think there's a case for elevating the resources of data protection authorities mm -hmm. across the EU. A quick note before I let you go, a quick note on Privacy Shield, which is the agreement between the US and the EU, um, which uh, replaced Safe Harbor, which, uh, as many people know, was struck down in the European Court of Justice, um, which was the end, the culmination of a long line of events that essentially started when uh, we found out that US uh, security authorities were spying on 
are gathering, harvesting a lot of uh, data from the, the uh, companies like Facebook and Yahoo without their uh, knowledge. But um, EU data protection authorities have been very lukewarm on uh, privacy shield. There have been a lot of concerns there. And to, to the point of threatening action to refer it to the European uh, Court of Justice um, by uh, May the 25th, um, do you think that's going to happen? So there's a very big uh, data protection summit in Washington in two weeks time. It's the IAPP uh, data summit uh, and quite a number of European data protection authorities will attend that event because, uh, as I said, it's one of the largest in the world uh, and it's an opportunity to meet a lot of key policymakers as well as the, the entities that we supervise. So the Irish Data Protection Authority will be there and I'm aware that the US authorities have sought a meeting with the delegation of, of European data protection authorities that will be there to update and to discuss the shortfalls that were identified in terms of the first year of operation of the Privacy mm. Shield, shortfalls that were identified by the EU Commission mm -hmm. in conducting its first review. And then the... Uh, One of those was... There's a permanent privacy shields ombudsman, wasn't it? Yeah, the appointment of a, of, of a permanent person in that uh, position uh, was one of the issues. So the Article 29, of course, reinforced uh, a lot of the points made by the EU Commission as it had participated. So I, I think we're still in discussions. We're still waiting to hear updates in relation to progress from the US authorities. Uh, that will happen. We'll get something of an update uh, as I said, in the next couple of weeks, and uh, then it will be a, a matter for reviewing. I think, incidentally, what that uh, statement from Article 29 said in relation to uh, a referral to the CJU mm. was that a national data protection authority that's right. would bring a matter would, before its yes. national courts. Yes, uh, so, and, yes, you're right. But that, so that could be you. I mean, that could be you bringing it before the High Court here, and then... It, it could, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so, but and do, do do you think it will be you? Is that gonna are you gonna be the person to do that? It, it, it's probably not useful to speculate at this point on until we uh, get an update from the U.S. authorities and uh, look at uh, where the various deficiencies that were identified mm -hmm. are at. Yeah, I did a quick check on the various websites that the U.S. have uh, on these positions, and it didn't seem to me that there was any material progress there, but. Maybe there will in, in, in two weeks' time. Um, and, of course, the elephant in the room behind all of this is uh, our activities like ongoing, uh, ongoing surveillance by U.S. authorities. And honestly, you talk to anyone and you ask them, do we think that you know, the CIA, the NSA um, in, UK, in the U.K. as well, whether they are going to stop accessing these services and stop harvesting this data it's very hard to see a scenario um, where they will do that which is essentially what privacy shield sets out to you know to achieve you know as you know we took a case uh, in the irish high court in relation to another mechanism for mm -hmm. transfers it's used not just to transfer to the us but to other third countries the standard contractual clauses mm -hmm. case um and uh, Justice Caroline Costello agreed with the position we took uh, when she issued her judgment in the, on the 3rd of October last year and agreed to make a reference to the Court of Justice of the European Union in relation to the validity uh, of those clauses. And she 
conducted a hearing in January of this year with the various parties to the case, Max Schrems, Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, our office um, and uh, the other amicus participants in terms of formulating the questions. Uh, and I think some of those questions around surveillance access and then the appropriate safeguards that have to be in place when data is being transferred uh, will fall out of 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 that case uh, once the reference is made, which we anticipate is likely to be this month, uh, that that uh, Justice Costello will make the reference. Yeah, it it just doesn't seem likely. Just stepping back from the legal process, that you know the U.S. is going to stop uh, tapping into our data streams, um, you know, uh, because of. Uh, d- data protection agreements between the EU and the US, it seems to be a security imperative, you know, for them. And maybe are we not, are we a little naive to think that they would? I suppose I have to be careful because we conduct investigations in into these types of issues and we have to follow fair procedures and due process and we have to adduce the facts as they exist. So um, I, I, I don't really want to comment along the lines uh, that, that you are, but... Mm. I suppose what I would say, uh, which which probably concurs really with the point you're making, is that there's likely to be a need, not just for litigation in these cases, bringing the matters to the CJEU, but there's likely to be a need for political solutions as well as legal solutions to make transfers sustainable uh, and balanced against uh, rights of, of, of yeah. individuals uh, in, in the longer term. Yeah, and... and but the politicians we have across the European Union, uh, countries like France, I mean, they have a very heavy uh, uh, security industry as well. You're, you're at, you, you must be right um, on that question, but it just remains to be seen whether um, whether that balance can be struck uh, or whether Privacy Shield is going to end up going the way of, of, of Safe Harbour and we'll be sitting here in three years talking about whatever whatever new term they come up with. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question. Uh, your future career, do you want to stay in data protection or would, is there something else you've been eyeing up? Uh, well, I, I, I'm glad you think I've time to think about anything yeah. other than the GDPR and expanding uh, the office that I oversee and engaging with my European counterparts in producing reams of guidance to interpret the GDPR. I, I haven't really thought beyond I'm I'm not yet finished the fourth year of the five year term mm-hmm. uh, that um, I, I agreed to serve. So I'm, I'm not at the point where I'm thinking of anything much other than the GDPR. OK, look, on that note, I'd like to sincerely thank uh, Helen Dixon, Data Protection Commissioner, for coming into studio today for a very interesting exposition and explanation of some of the issues that she's dealing with and that we're all dealing with, actually. Um, if you uh, enjoy this podcast, please do give it a rating or leave a comment on any of the podcast engines you use, SoundCloud or iTunes or whatever it is. But for me, Adrian Weckler, that's all for now. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.